This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Um, If you want to turn in your Bibles to Acts 12, we're going to be at the very tail end, going into 13. Starting in verse 25, Acts 12, 25, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing them John, whose name, whose, whose other's name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Manon, a long-life friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sirius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil. Oh, geez, I lost my spot. I'm sorry. You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, you will not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking the people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord." Morning, church. How are you? Good. Hey, um, I love funny people. I love to laugh. You know me at all. I love jokes. Uh, the funniest people that I know tend to be kids. Sorry, Jamie. You're you're okay. Uh, kids are hilarious. Um, in particular, the things that go through their mind. They're asking questions. Uh, if you've had kids, you know that they come up with the funniest questions to ask. My oldest has done this for years. In fact, I told him one day I'm going to write a book about his questions called, Dad, what if there was a book of all the questions I asked? Because every question he asks is a what if question. The question's like, uh, and they're off the wall, like, hey, Dad, uh, what if there were, what if all the Fort Wayne police cars were pink? Yeah, like, that's, I don't know what to answer these questions. I don't know, what, what am I supposed to say? Uh, you know, questions like, Dad, what if, uh, what if cars were the same shape as the food that was in them? I was like, I actually have an answer to that. It's called Oscar Mayer Wiener Car. Uh, or what if we, what if the uh, clothes we wore were made of food? Answer for that one too. Uh, Lady Gaga wore a meat dress once. Uh, but those are the kinds of questions that he asked. Like, what if? And and they go on and on. And you know, little kids, they always ask those weird questions. Why, why, why? 
And we tend to think, though, as we get older, we grow out of questions. But the reality is, as we grow up, our questions grow up with us. And, and to get a little deeper, we don't always like to acknowledge the questions as we grow up. A lot of times we push them down and we shove them down. But really, we're all looking to answer questions. In fact, I would argue that every religion, every philosophy, every worldview that you come across, every person that you interact with is looking for answers to questions. Core questions, key questions. I would boil it down. And, um, a lot of philosophers and theologians boil down the core questions of life to these five questions. First one, who am I? What does it mean to be human? Where am I? What, what is this place? What's wrong with me and in my world? How does it get fixed? And, and in regards to living in that, what, what is the good life? Unless it's your, your friends, your, your neighbors, your coworkers, even you, yes, you have these questions and you function every day with an answer whether it's consistent or not, you are all functioning with an answer to each of these questions. R.C. Sproul used to say that everyone's a theologian because everybody has a belief about God. They function with a belief about God. I would also argue that everyone is a philosopher because everybody functions with a belief to an answer to these core questions in life. And your neighbors and your coworkers have these questions and they're looking for answers and many don't know what these answers are, but they're looking. And today we're looking at a text about a man, though from a very different time and place than ours, is not a whole lot different than people today because he's dissatisfied with the answers that have been given him. The answers have been given by the greatest sages in his time. And in your world, your neighbors, your family and friends are dissatisfied with the answers that the world is giving them. And that's why our big idea for today is this, is Christ is the answer to the world's questions. Christ is the answer to the world's questions. And we're going to see from our text today that there are four responses that we need to have for a world seeking answers. Four responses. And we're going to see in this text how God is actively working to help answer those questions and how we ought to respond. So we're going to walk through our text this morning. We're going to start back in verse 25. Adam brought us up through verse 24 last week. So we're going to pick up our text in 1225 for the first response we need to have, which is this. We need to follow the Spirit to lost people. We need to follow the Spirit to lost people. Let's go back and look at verse 25. I'm going to read again. It says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now in verse 1, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod, Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. What you have here is, and this is important to note because there's a big transition in happening here in the book of Acts. You're going to find a number of changes if you've been paying attention through our series that are going to start happening. 
first is we're now moving away from Peter as being kind of the primary main character in the book of Acts to now this guy named Paul. We've heard a little bit about him off and on up to this point, but now the focus is going to be on Paul and what God is doing through Paul through the rest of the book of Acts. We also find this transition happening in who uh, the, the mission of God is going towards. We've been talking primarily about a Jewish group of people, Jewish believers who have come to faith, Jesus is the Messiah. Now we're going to start to notice a huge shift towards Gentiles. And the other major shift is you're going to notice geographically where up until this point, everything seemed to center around the city of Jerusalem in, in Israel and what's going on there. A little bit in Judea, but now we're getting to that part of the Great Commission where Jesus says, go to the uttermost parts of the earth. You remember that? That's what we see happening here. And you're going to see that this city, Antioch, kind of comes, becomes the hub of all the work that God is doing throughout the rest of the book of Acts. But if you noticed, hopefully you did in verse 2, that all this change is starting to happen because of the Spirit's leading. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord, these, these leaders, this church in Antioch, they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So you have this big transition happening, and all of a sudden, the, the people of Antioch are like, man, we need to go. We need to reach the world. They, they, they want to they send Paul and Barnabas on a mission. If you look in your Bibles, you may see a title that says Paul's first missionary journey. That's what's happening here. But this wasn't Paul and Barnabas' grand scheme, grand idea. They didn't sit and like, hey, man, we need to reach uh, Cyprus with the gospel. Well, maybe, maybe they wanted to, but that's not what the text focuses on. Who sent them? It was the Spirit. You also see this in verse 4. Jump down to verse 4. So being sent out by who? The Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that's leading them. Now we keep reading. Now being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So notice where the Spirit is leading. He sends them off to Cyprus. Now, Cyprus is an island about 60 miles west into the Mediterranean, uh, or I'm sorry, east into the Mediterranean from Antioch. This is Barnabas' home island. This is a Roman province. It's not part of Israel anymore. Now, there's a lot of uh, Jewish presence. There's clearly synagogues all over this island. And you get this idea of almost like um, when you're watching a movie, it's like that road trip montage, you know, where they're driving down the highway and they stop at all the rest stops and the sites and they're taking pictures. You got kind of that going on, right? They're traveling across Cyprus and then the, the, the movie stops and zooms in on this one location. And that's what Luke's doing here. He says, they end up in Paphos. There's a lot happening in Cyprus, but we're interested in this. And why? Do you see why? Because they land at Paphos, and who was there? There's a guy named Bar-Jesus. And verse 7 tells us there's another guy named um, Sergius Paulus. 
See, the Spirit's leading, but he's leading them to people. Two people. So that's why our first response to world asking questions is to follow the Spirit's leading to people because he was doing it then and he's doing it today. So I have to ask you this morning is, are you following the Spirit's leading? Are you following the Spirit's leading? See, too often I think that when we talk about the Spirit's leading, we tend to think it very subjectively. We're looking for like a mystical experience. How many of you have felt that way in your life? Like, hey, they're telling me to lead... To follow the Spirit's leading, to listen to the Spirit. And so you're waiting around like, oh, how do I know? Is it like this feeling that I get? Is Do I like throw some dust in the air and see which way the wind blows and that's where I'm supposed to go? Can I give you some guidelines? Let me give you four guidelines and following the Spirit. Things that I think will be really helpful for you. The first is this. You need to read, know, and obey God's word. See, listen, the the Spirit, the Holy Spirit never works differently than what God's Word says. Why do I say that? Well, because Ephesians tells us, Ephesians 5 tells us that God's Word is literally the sword of the Spirit. This is His weapon. This is His tool. He's not going to work differently than His sword. In fact, 1 Peter tells us that the authors of Scripture were carried along by the Spirit. So we should expect that the Spirit's going to lead based on what his word says. The more you know and love the word, the more you're going to know his leading. Now, I'll be honest with you. He's he's probably not going to explicitly say, hey, for lunch today, you need to go to Bob Evans instead of Buffalo Wild Wings. Okay, That's not what I'm talking about when he says where. But he is going to lead you to places like, hey, you need to share the gospel with your neighbors. And you need to do it in a way that shows love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. So you need to read, know, and obey God's word. You also need to pray and ask for guidance. Do you see that? That's what they were doing in this text. Go back and look. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, and then in verse 3, Then after fasting and praying, they sought guidance from the Spirit. They prayed. You also need to look to your church body. That's what was going on here. They were doing it together. They were worshiping. This this was a community thing. The more you are connected to the body of Christ, the more clearly you're going to see what the Spirit has you do. Because people are going to speak in your life and they're going to say, hey, did you know that you're really good at this one thing? Do you know you're really good at caring for people? Do you know you're really good at speaking? Do you know you're really good at organizing things? Maybe you should do that. Maybe you should serve in this ministry because you're really good at doing those things. That's the spirit leading through the body, helping you know what to do. But last and most importantly here is look to where the people are. Because the Spirit leads toward people. Because his main job is to execute God's mission. And God's mission is to save people. And to turn them into little Christ. To make them images of Christ. 
So whatever you're doing, whatever you believe God's spirit is leading you to, at the end of that ought to be people. So if God is, if the spirit is leading you to be an architect, he's leading you to be an architect to build houses for people. If he's leading you to teach, he's leading you to teach people. If he's leading you to care for orphans, orphans are people. So whatever it is that you believe the Spirit's leading you to, if a person is not on the other end, if you can't say that's who, if it's not a who, then you're not seeing his leading clearly. You're there for people first, because that's what the Spirit cares about. So our first response that we get from our text this morning is this, is we need to follow the Spirit to lost people. We need to follow the Spirit. Second is this, is we need to focus on curious people. We need to focus on curious people. Let's jump back into our text and read with me verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. I say focus on curious people because this Sergius Paulus was a curious man, a very curious man. You say, why do you say that, Drew? I don't see the word curious here. Well, in just a brief profile that the writer Luke here gives us Sergius Paulus, he's making it very clear that this Sergius Paulus was an incredibly curious man. First, it tells us that he was a proconsul. Now, this is a technical term in Roman government and hierarchy. To sum it up for you, it means he was the top official in the whole, re- whole region. He was the top guy in Cyprus. He ruled the area, kind of like a Pontius Pilate situation. Understanding that he's pro-council is very important because when you get to verse 7, it says Bar-Jesus was with the proconsul. That with isn't just like, hey, uh, Bar-Jesus and Sergius Paulus are hanging out at the bar on Friday night. What that means is, Bar-Jesus was an advisor to Sergius Paulus. He was functioning as an advisor. And this is important. And it's actually very common in this day and age for Roman leaders to have these types of advisors, magicians and, and prophets, clairvoyants, trying to see in the future because they were incredibly superstitious people. They believed in the supernatural and they were looking for anything that would give them insight into the future to know what to do because they loved their power. They wanted to keep their power, but they loved knowledge. Paul even says that in 1 Corinthians that that the Greeks seek knowledge and wisdom. They loved their mediums. But also the text tells us that he was a wise man. In verse 7, it says he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This idea of intelligence here isn't just book smart. He didn't just know all the names of the Greek gods and all the roads in Cyprus. The, the root there is the same root that we get the word sage from, meaning he was a man of understanding. He, he knew what to do, when to do it. He was wise and understanding, he made good decisions. And he was a seeker of knowledge. And knowledge so he can know what to do and when to do it. Wisdom. And last, it tells us that he, 
he summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now we know from other texts that man is spiritually dead on his own and he doesn't seek after God. So we can't say for sure that he was seeking after God, but he was seeking to learn something. He wanted to know, what is it? There's this message that's spreading across my island by these two guys. People are believing this is different. This is interesting. I want to hear what it is. Sergius Paulus was a curious man. Like I said earlier, he's not a whole lot different than the people in your life, than you. Because everyone has questions. But the reality is some are more curious than others. See, as we get older, most people, those core questions I talk about, try to bury them or ignore them. Or are satisfied with the answer they come up with. But there are people who are more curious than others, and those are the people in particular we need to focus on. Not that we don't share the gospel with everyone. Anybody who is willing to listen, we share the gospel with. But there are people in your life who we need to particularly focus on. So let me help you here. Identify those who are curious. Let me give you some tips to identify those who are curious. The one way to do it is just look for people who openly ask deep questions. We talked about kids before, and maybe you've experienced this with your kid. Your kid comes up and says, Dad, Mom, why do people die? Whew, that'll knock you off your seat. Like, I was just about to sit down and watch some Netflix, and you asked me that? Okay. Maybe your coworker is asking why God would allow them to marry such a horrible person. Or maybe they're like Sergius Paulus and just straight up ask to hear the word of God. There are some people who are that explicit in their questions. Those are curious people. And God is putting a big neon sign over their head saying, here, this is someone to talk to. But there are other people, other ways to identify them, like people who experience major life change. Because many people don't reveal their curiosity explicitly, but when life changes, major life changes, change happens and it doesn't fit their their experience what they understood life to work all of a sudden they become curious they had a grid that they filtered life through and something comes along a a, a major tragedy a, a death of a loved one sometimes even the birth of a child or falling in love this major experience comes into life and all of a sudden the grid that they filtered life through isn't working anymore And they don't know what to do. They don't know what to make sense of this world because all the answers they thought they had are no longer the right answers. And those are curious people. I think of a couple that we knew when we first moved to Colorado back in 2009. Names were Mark and Jenna. Catherine and I moved out there to do a church plant and we it was probably a good six, eight weeks before we found a job because we were young and foolish and moved in the middle of a recession. And um, so don't do that unless you really believe God's called you. And we did believe that God called us out there. So we moved to Colorado and we sat in our third floor apartment every day after looking for jobs. We're like, what do we do? And we would just watch all these people coming in out of our apartment um, complex. And if you didn't know, apartment complexes aren't built for community, aren't built to naturally connect with people. 
So we would sit there and we knew we were there for church plants. So we wanted to find ways to get to know people. And there's just not a lot of opportunities. Like we may or may not have sabotaged our neighbors as we saw them come in. Like, hey, look, there they are. And we rush out to like just conveniently have to get something out of the car at the same time they got home for whatever reason, just so we couldn't connect with them. And we would do this thing where we like try to guess what their names were. And, um, you know, we'd assign names to people uh, like, hey, that looks like a John. Yeah, he's a John. And um, I remember a particular Emily, who was not Emily. Uh, got that one wrong, too. Her name was Jenna. And we watched her come home from work every day, and Catherine, again, would try to, like, time it just right so she could go meet her. And just never had a chance. And then one day the fire alarm went off. And I have never been more excited for a fire alarm in my entire life. As we rushed down there, like, now's our chance, and everybody has to come out of the building. We can't go in. We have to talk to people. And it was perfect, because God allowed us the opportunity to get to know Mark and Jenna slash Emily right at that time. And we introduced ourselves, and we kind of hit it off with them. We spent a lot of time over the next couple months with Mark and Jenna, and they introduced us to another couple in the uh, apartment, Tim and Wendy. Um, It was really great. And God just allowed some really good conversations, found out that Jenna grew up in the church. And she was from Oregon, and she had knew, claimed to have known Christ, but really walked away from the faith and was now living with the boyfriend. Mark and Jenna moved out after a little while, got a house just a couple miles away. And I remember the day that Catherine got a call from Jenna. And Jenna said, crying, Mark just died. Mark was young, maybe 28, 29. Tragic brain aneurysm. Nobody saw it coming. And Catherine was the first person she called. And Jenna had a lot of questions. And my wife was able to point Jenna to the gospel and to Christ. And while we don't know the status of Mark, Jenna claimed that he was asking a lot of questions himself before he died, and she trusting that God saved him before he passed. Jenna was able to get married. She lives in Oregon now, has a family, loves Jesus, loves her church. But Catherine was there, paying attention, building relationships. Because life change happened, and the questions came. So how do we respond to those who are curious and we need to have real relationships with people. Listen, your neighbor, when her mom dies, is not going to come talk to you if you've only talked to her twice a year when you happen to pass by her picking up the mail. You have to actually know people and be in their lives to know that life changes happened and there's a time for you to speak into their life. You need to have real relationships with people. respond to those who are curious, you also need to know when to listen and when to speak. And I'll tell you, most of the time, you're going to first listen. And then the second thing you're going to do is you're probably going to listen. And the third thing you're going to do is probably listen some more. In fact, on the front end, you're going to be doing a lot of listening and praying and asking God to tell you when to speak. And when you do, the third thing you need is you need to be ready to answer questions. This is why it's so important for you to know your Bibles. Here's my shameless plug for Redemption University. 
If you want to know your Bible so you know how to answer questions for people when they have life change and they, they're curious and you're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to answer them. Come to Redemption University. We will teach you. We will help you learn. We're going to have so many classes to help you, help equip you to know your Bibles so you know what to say. And fourthly, you ask the right questions. Because even though people are curious, not everyone can identify those core questions that are really at their hearts driving their behavior. And asking good questions draws out the heart. So here's my second shameless plug. Come to Redemption Biblical Counseling Training. Get plugged into a small group because in those contexts you will learn how to ask good heart-probing questions so you can respond to those who are curious in your life. The second response we need to have is we need to focus on curious people. The third is this, is we need to fight off oppositional people. Fight off oppositional people. We saw in verse 6 that Barnabas and Saul ran into this guy named Bar-Jesus while being summoned to, to minister or at least speak the word to Sergius Paulus. Now we jump to verse 8. And we find this guy named Elimus. Read it with me here. But Elimus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul from the faith. Now this guy, Elimus, is the same guy as Bar-Jesus. Okay, it's kind of like we call Jamie, Jamie, but we also call him pastor. You're welcome. Uh, so Elimus is just the name, kind of like the nickname that they gave to this Bar-Jesus guy. It says, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. So we need to fight off oppositional people. And we find in this text that it helps us see who, um, how to fight the right people. See, Bar-Jesus was an enemy of God. That's why I mean the right people. He was an enemy of God. We saw in verse 6 and repeated in verse 8 that, that Bar-Jesus was a magician. And he was a Jew. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that God is adamantly opposed to magicians in the dark arts. And as a Jew, this guy should have known better. But he was doing it. Probably because it gave him some prestige. Clearly it gave him the ability to speak into this proconsul's life. It gave him some uh, clout. It also tells us in verse 6 and verse 8 that he was a false prophet. I say in verse 8 because of his name, Elimus. It's most scholars believe that's likely rooted in Aramaic or um, Arabic and just means a sage or interpreter of dreams. But Paul calls him in verse 10, he's full of deceit and villainy. He intentionally leads people astray. And I love where he says, making crooked the straight paths. That's the opposite of what true prophets do. Isaiah 40 tells us that a true prophet makes crooked paths straight. And this guy is doing the exact opposite. But most importantly, it says he was actively 
opposing the gospel. Did you see that in verse 8? But Elimus the magician opposed them. He felt threatened. If his boss converted, he was out of a job. See, Sergius Paulus was a complete pagan, probably believed all sorts of crazy ideas. He was not the enemy in this text. Who was the enemy? The enemy was Bar-Jesus, a guy who should have known better. He knew his faith. He was a Jew. And he was an enemy because he opposed them and actively sought to turn this man away from believing in Christ. He didn't just disagree with Barnabas and Saul. He was intentionally working against their efforts. Those are the people that need to be fought. But he fought the right way. Paul fought the right way. He fought off Bar-Jesus through the power and leading of the Holy Spirit. Again, we see the Holy Spirit work here. It says in verse 9, Paul filled with the Holy Spirit. It wasn't his power. In fact, he even says, no, says so in verse 11, Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. So isn't Paul going out in his own power trying to defeat what he saw as an enemy? It was the Holy Spirit who led him, and it was his power. And he addressed the man's sinful heart motives. But most importantly, he fought off Bar-Jesus for the sake of Sergius Paulus. See, Bar-Jesus was made physically blind here to illustrate the spiritual blindness that he clearly had. Here's what we need to understand and walk away with. There is a time and a place to fight off opposition with strong language. Now, there's, there tends to be two extremes I see in Christianity with these types of situations. One, and I believe it's out of a genuine desire for love and charity. We, we don't want to confront people. We don't want to ruffle feathers. We want there to be unity and everybody get along. And so, so we won't address this. And what happens is we end up embracing these oppositional views sometimes or, or just ignore them, hoping they'll go away. And we just let people like this carry on with their shenanigans. Or we go the other direction and we find anybody who even disagrees with the smallest little point of doctrine with us and we call them the enemy and just blow people up. But there is a time and place to fight with strong and direct and clear language. But we need to know who the opposition is and who the opposition is not. Let me tell you who the opposition is not. It is not someone who simply believes differently than you. They're not the opposition. It's not all non-Christians. It's not somebody who has a different political belief than you, a different doctrinal belief than you. It's not all Muslims, all Hindus, all agnostics. These are not inherently your enemy just because they believe differently than you. Are they lost? Sure. Many of them are. They have bad ideas or wrong, uh, wrong ideas that need to be corrected. Yeah, some of them do. They need their faith in Christ and repent from their sin. Absolutely. Are they the opposition? No. This is who the opposition it is. Those deliberately opposed to the message of the gospel and taking action to stop others from believing. And most are those who know better. And I'm talking not in generalities specifically. 
They're trying to keep specific people from hearing the message of Christ, meaning you should know who their first and last name is and who the first and last name is the person that they're trying to stop from believing. You're just going and blasting anybody on the internet, on Facebook or Twitter or Reddit, who doesn't believe the gospel. These are actual specific people you have relationships with or know who are stopping other people you have relationships with from believing. So you need to know who the opposition is and is not. You also need to check your heart. Did you see Paul's motive here? He wasn't trying to own the heretics. It was love. It was a love for and a desire to see Sergius Paulus come to faith in Christ. It was not as out of a sense of justice or superiority or desire to, to win the day. If your motive is not love, then you need to keep your mouth shut. You need to call out specific sinful heart motives to specific people. Notice he didn't get in a theological debate because that's not what it was about. The issue wasn't that Bar Jesus wasn't smart enough or didn't know the, the doctrines that he was supposed to know. The issue that he was in sin. He calls him a son of the devil, an enemy of righteousness. And it's a personal indirect address. And then fifth, we need to leave them in the hands of the Holy Spirit. See, Paul did exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted him to do because he was filled with the Spirit. And God and the Spirit gave him a, a specific power and privilege of blinding this man. There is no command in Scripture, though, for us to blind people. If you find one, tell me. It's not there. But there are lots of other commands of how we were to respond, what we're supposed to do. In fact, Look at Romans 12. Verse 18 says this, If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So on a practical level, call out their sin and walk away. Leave them in God's hands. Our third response to world-seeking questions is fight off oppositional people. And the fourth is this. We need to feed Christ to hungry people. Let's look at how the text ends in verse 12. It says, I love this. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. See, curious people are hungry for answers. He was looking, Sergius Paulus was looking for answers. Clearly, he had this advisor who was giving him things, and he wasn't happy because he sought to hear from the word of God. And what did he get? He received the message of the Lord because it says he believed. And what amazed him most wasn't this guy getting blinded, was it? Look at what it says. For he was astonished at what? At the teaching of the Lord. 
It was Christ who was the answer that he was looking for. It was Christ that he received. He didn't need miracles and signs and wonders. Going back to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he was looking for wisdom and he found the wisdom of Christ, which is foolishness to the world. But he believed. This final point is short and simple because, and it's vital for us to understand you need to feed Christ to hungry people. With all the people in your life who are asking questions, with all the good things that you want to do to reach them, whether it's making them a, a dinner when a loved one dies, when it's serving at a soup kitchen, when it's helping answer people's questions about apologetics, maybe you're in apologetics. All those things are great efforts and great things you need to do. But if none of them are leading to you giving them Christ, then you are not giving them the greatest answer to their deepest questions. You have wasted your time. And I understand that sometimes you're in the long game. Sometimes it may be years that you're ministering to people before you get the opportunity to feed them Christ, but that is what their hearts are hungry for. You give them Christ, that's what Sergius Paulus received. He believed. You feed them Christ. And all you do and all you say, that should be your end goal. So think about your world today. Think about what you see on your Facebook feed and you turn on the TV, you walk into your kid's school, you interact with your family on the weekends. It feels, we hear this all the time, it feels dark. It feels like things are coming apart at the seams. It feels like the world is getting worse and worse. And we can be discouraged, but I'll tell you, do you want to know why it's happening? Because people are dissatisfied with the answers that have been fed them for years and years and years. That's why the world's falling apart, church. Because people are dissatisfied. Because sin is proving what sin does. That it only um, reaps death and destruction. And for decades, our culture and uh, the world has planted the seeds of lies and false truths and have-truths, and it's reaping the fruits of death and destruction, and people are dissatisfied, and they're curious. That's why it looks like the world's getting darker. Because what do you expect to happen? And people are curious. There is more of an opportunity now than ever for you to share and feed people the true hope that they need, which is Christ. So are you this morning going to follow the spirit to lost people? Are you going to focus on curious people? Are you going to be brave and fight off oppositional people? Are you going to feed Christ to hungry people? I pray that you will. I pray that our church will. God, I thank you that your spirit is still at work today still leading us, still showing us where to go, who to talk to. I thank you that we still have your word to give us the answers that people are looking for. I thank you've given us the greatest answer, the ultimate answer, which is your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we as a church 
would present that answer to all those in our lives who are seeking to know. God, because we know that you are drawing people to yourself. You are a saving God, saving people today, and you want to use us. So humble us, encourage us, strengthen us to do that. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Thank you, Redemption. You are loved.